they hit the bell there, and around 3.04, 3.05, it's going to be quick. Whiteman pushing on, has an indoor best of 3.37. Surely he's going to improve on that as Hoare moves up alongside the Briton. Now, has Whiteman got anything left in those legs? I don't think he has, because Hoare kicks away on this final bend. Some of the Australians have been producing wonderful times in recent weeks, and this is going to be a wonderful win for Hoare. Oliver Hoare, the 24-year-old Australian, comes home across the line. 3.32.36. Wow. That makes him about the sixth fastest in history at this distance. Just checking, the seventh fastest in history at this distance. Hey, everyone. Before we dive into this episode of Ellie Hoare, a quick note. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please press the subscribe button on whatever device you are using. And if you have 10 seconds to spare, a five-star review would be deeply appreciated. Australian men's 1500 metre running is hot right now, and in amongst it is Ollie Hall. Hailing from Bar in Sydney, Ollie moved to college post high school and raced for Wisconsin. He forged an awesome collegiate career, including an outdoor 1500 metre NCAA title. 2020 marked Ollie's first year as a pro athlete, and he didn't mess around. But 2021 has been the year that Ollie has emerged as a true threat in global 1500 metre running. So far, as of May 11, 221, Ollie has clocked three Olympic standards over 1500 metres, winning all three of those races in dominant fashion. First, there was a 332 indoor 1500 in New York in February, where Ollie set a new Australian indoor 1500 metre record, clocked the seventh fastest indoor time in history. He showed it was no fluke a few months later, when he clocked a 333 to dominate in Oregon. Then he stepped up at Mount Sac just a few days ago, dominated again, clocking another 3.33. With the Tokyo Olympics approaching, we caught up with Ollie and dived deep into pretty much anything we could think of. This episode is sponsored by On Running. From small beginnings in Zurich, Switzerland, On set out in 2010 with a big ambition to change the world of running. Though in 11 years since, On has been embraced into the hearts and onto the feet of more than 3 million runners in over 50 countries, and there's no sign of slowing down. In fact, speeding up is more the case. On are proud to support On Athletic Club member and Australian Ollie Hall. Ollie is one of Australia's fastest and top talents leading into the Tokyo Olympics. All right, we're here with Ollie Hall. Welcome to Brunch Tribe. Uh, Ollie, you, you dumped a 332 indoors. We need to start chatting about that. Uh, you beat Jake Whiteman that day, a 329, 1500-metre runner, uh, which is quite the scout. What are your views on that run? Was that legit one of the best runs of your life? You know, and what are your thoughts on on the track? You know, is the track super fast? Is that 332, you know, at 332, you know, in, in terms of outdoor equivalents? What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, well, I think that race in particular, it was a gold gold label race and to have that kind of field um, with a couple of guys that were well well, finalist Doha, it was cool to have that um, into that race. And I just kind of tactically did what I needed to do. I knew Wyman was going for the British record, which was 334. Um, and for me, I was in such in good shape. And this was the first race we kind of had where things started to align. Um, you know, training was going well. I was able to get into those races and stuff started to count because the past three races I did as a pro uh, were under that freeze time um, during COVID-19. So... For me, coming out and running uh, running well and beating those guys and running a 3.32.3 was, was a great run for me and it was a great indicator for where I'm at. Definitely, obviously, performance-wise, um, one of the best performances I've done as a pro so early on in my career. Um, indoor track, obviously, people don't know much about it in Australia. In America, it's quite big and in Europe as well. And 
I think it just there's there's different variations of track, different variations of of um, the steepness of the curve and everything. Like obviously conditions are usually perfect. There's no issues with wind, rain, or anything like that. But um, there is that tight 200 meter bend. Um, I mean, I don't know too much about like the logistics of how it's faster or slower, but you know, running the seventh all time fastest 1500 meter indoors, um, you know, is a good indication of where I was anyway, regardless because. You have guys like Jakob Ingebrigtsen running 331.84. I think he ran that a, a week or two before me. And, you know, he's a 329 guy. So, um, you know, it's, it's just either way, I think a 329 indoors is just a 329 indoors. You can't really change much about that. Um, but for me, it, it, it's obviously like it can, it's less variation with, with the weather for sure. And, and the track's a lot shorter and it, it can be a lot tighter, especially for people that are taller. But overall, you know, it's it's just – a race and it can be compared to every other indoor race but i think outdoors you can't compare indoor and outdoor but right under the olympic standard it, it counts and it counts towards the world ranking too so it's it's definitely um you know it's a legit legit uh legit race cool man you also clocked a 333 in eugene and just last night yesterday i think a 333 mount sack you won all these races um what's going on man like if you just had like an amazing last six months in terms of prep is it all just come together? Is that is that what's happening? Yeah. So I mean, for me, really, it's just been been going into my situation as a pro. I I uh, came out of college and was excited to do more. Um, obviously, excited to come back home for the trials before COVID kind of hit the US and everywhere else in the world. So for me, it was just all that training, all that prep was there, and I think a lot of athletes felt that too. And you have that kind of duration of everything shutting down and just going back to. The drawing board and for me I, I built up a great relationship with my my new coach Nathan Rittenheim and the group on Athletic Club uh, who based in Boulder Colorado where we are right now and um, we were able to get in good training we were able to get the good opportunities to come out and find races and then I, obviously New York was a big opportunity for me to kind of put myself in a position where I wouldn't have an issue of getting into any race um, if I ran well and then since then obviously the three golden label races I've run um, I've been able to win in world-class fields and run fast. And I think for me, in my situation, that's the best possible outcome leading into um, trying to get that third spot on the um, on the Olympic team for the 1,500 metres. So uh, we're just, you know, doing what we can on this end with, with everything going with the pandemic and the restrictions that come with it. And uh, for me, I really enjoyed the racing and being able to run fast. And hopefully in the next few races coming up, um, you know, I can get more opportunities to, to do – um, what I've been doing, right? So leading on from that, the are you in terms of the the European season this year? Are you targeting? Are you going to try and get in some of those races that say you know Chariot and I think your Britons will be you know going out in sub three thirty pace and hanging on? Is there a plan in place? Yeah, so I'm heading off to Gateshead Diamond League uh, in two weeks. Um, that'll be my first Diamond League, and it's pretty awesome as a pro and the gone pro. Um, in May 2020 to be able to go to a Diamond League now in my third or fourth race in the 1500. So I'm very, very excited about that. Very, very lucky to do that. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's an experience to be able to run against guys like with that caliber and be able to compete with the world beaters. Um, for me, it's just about going out and trying to do what I've been doing. I've, I've got the fitness and the strength there. And if I can run a quicker time and, and compete with those guys, then it's going to help me with selection and moving forward towards uh, Tokyo if possible. Well, you had to come home, uh, I think, late kind of 2.20 was for visa issues, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, so right. my I graduated from college um, and I 
decided to go professional, so I signed with an agent and a company. And from there on, I have to get a P1 visa, which is a professional athlete visa, which is recognized by the United States. Uh, most athletes have to have that, um, but they have to have a contract. And um, so I have to go home, um, unfortunately, do the two-week in the box uh, in Sydney, hotel quarantine. And then I was able to go out and go to the embassy and get an emergency meeting with the consulate to get my visa to come back here and be able to kind of pursue what I was doing over here in the United States. Gotcha. So um, obviously there's some in Australia who, you know, you were here just before Chrissy and, um, you know, nationals were four or five months away. There's, there's always there's always going to be people argue that you should have just hung around and, and stayed in Australia and raced our nationals. So it's kind of a level playing field. What do, you, what, what, do you, what do you have to say to that? Well, I think for me, I mean, my situation was a lot different. I had no support in Australia. I never have had support in Australia. And uh, I went to college to receive that support, um, get a degree, um, and be able to pursue my running career um, for Australia. So um, signing a contract, I have obligations to go back to my team. Uh, to go back to where everything's based, where my life is, my financial situation is. Um, so for me, it was it was kind of like I had to um, I had to go back um, to to start off. And I also had these big races coming up. I had the New York race that I knew was going to be fast. I had Eugene at the New Haywood Field, and I had Mount Sac. And then leading forward, the Diamond Leagues. If I was running well enough to prove myself to get into those races, so um, I know it was a difficult situation, but. Waiting around for four or five months um, with my family and not being with my group or with my, my training facility and where I, you know, where I'm supposed to be, um, it, it's not smart for an Olympic year. Um, that's why people like you know Morgan McDonald um, and even um, other uh, foreigners have stayed over here because that's where their situation's based. And obviously, people you know I would would, would argue to stay and, and run into the trials. But for me, the best possible situation was hopefully get exemption to come back for the trials um, as I was, you know, with COVID tests and everything like that and vaccinations and be able to race. But the situation was I was, you know, in a better position here to run well, to run fast and to be able to bring myself in one of the top runners in, in the world. So um, it was a difficult decision, but it was a decision that I thought um, was a smart one. And, and the past few races have, have kind of solidified for that for me, I think. Cool, man. So uh, in your opinion, obviously, I, I think I know the answer to this, but if you had decided as an 18-year-old to stay put in Australia, get, you know, trained with one of the main groups in Sydney, I believe you're from Karenbar, um, where do you think you'd be now if, if you went down that road? Um, if I stayed in Sydney, I think I definitely would have been with Melbourne Truck Club. I think the group itself has had such a great, um, you know, history of, of being able to get the elite runners domestically in Australia. Uh, around the world and competing well. Um, you know, I not like other countries where there's a lot of money, a lot of funding in other places. Uh, MTC do a really good job of, of, you know, harnessing that kind of pro level. And I think for me, if, if I didn't go over, I would have done university online or done university in some way. And I think I would have been with MTC. I don't think there's, there's many other groups that offer that kind of experience, uh, that kind of way of which you can actually go and race internationally um get into those races that are very difficult to get into um they have that kind of monopoly power with that and i think they've got a great training group they've done well they've got their performances to attest to that so i think for me that would be the ideal place to be if i stayed home in australia and when you finished your college career 
Uh, obviously, you turned pro and signed it on running. But, you know, did you consider uh, moving to Melbourne Track Club? Uh, you know, was that a discussion you guys had with your support network? Uh, no, not really. We didn't have a really discussion with it. I think because of the situation that we were all facing uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, not a lot of companies were signing. Um, not a lot of things were opening up. People were kind of shutting down, uh, which is fair enough because they got to, you know, hold on to what they have because they weren't sure and the uncertainty of what was coming with the future. And being a professional runner, um, you don't really have that much security. So um, I had already made a, a prominent name in the United States, um, winning an NCAA championship and being an 11-time All-American. So that kind of helped me stay in America and sign with an agent there and be able to kind of continue my my wanting to stay in the United States because I've done so well here and the lifestyle that I live here has helped me become a better runner. Um, I was able to get very, very well looked after and find contracts that were going to help me stay here, get the visa and perform and hopefully, you know, represent Australia. So um, that was the best opportunity for me um, and that's the one that I went with and it, it turned out to be fantastic and the setup that I have now, I, I'm very, very lucky. Sweet. How 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 important? How big is winning an NCAA title? You know, um, how did that change how you kind of perceived in in America? Yeah. So I think it's it's a uh, being the best in the country in college at that kind of setup. It's it's a it's a big it's, a, it's seen as a golden ticket in some ways into getting a contract because um, it's such a prestigious thing to win. It, it, besides being a professional athlete. Um, if you look at the collegiate system and the NCAA system and you follow track and field, you'll notice a lot of familiar names um, winning those NCAA titles. Matt Sanchewitz, Sidney McLaughlin, um, Noah Lyles. Like, 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 there's this, it's just such a diver, like, diverse range of athletes that are not just distance heavy but all over the board for track and field that come out as NCAA champions and they usually come out as world champions, world medalists, um, finalists at Olympic and um, world championships. So... Um, recruiters and agents look at that as a way in which, okay, this guy has this kind of value um, coming out of college. He's done this, which is very, very difficult to do. Um, particularly is, you know, I think particularly with distance in the NCAA is quite, quite hard and, and quite heavy. Um, and I think that's a big indicator of how big or how good your contract will be or what your setup will be and what opportunities you'll have next moving forward in the United States um, just to be able to have that setup of, of being a professional runner here, so it is a it is a good indication, and it helps brands and our agents look at you as a way in which okay, you seem to be valuable, you have potential to um, take it to the next level. Cool man. Hey, let's move on to on running. How does it work with the squad? You know, is it is your squad completely hundred percent backed by on running? Uh, is it is every single athlete in that squad and on you know wearing on shoes? Um, how does it all work? Yeah, so it's very similar to um, other group setups like Brooks Beast, um, Bauman, OTC. Um, what would happen is that this brand on running, they came with the idea of they wanted to create a track group. They had been growing exponentially the past few years and they wanted to build something big in uh, the United States. So they created a team on Athletic Club. Um, and their goal of that team was actually to be um, a diverse team of foreigners and Americans that way would represent on at the highest level in track and field. So their main goal was to get a really good coach, a young coach um, that had experience with it, 
They had a lot of backing and funding from former Oregon Project and um, Nike people um, that were kind of, you know, moving into that marketing section. So they kind of knew what they were looking at and expecting. Um, everyone in the group is under contract by on. Um, everyone's under contract to where they get all the gear. Um, they have bonuses. They have um, rollovers, caps, all that sort of stuff the contract have with you an individual. But the contract um, doesn't state anything other than, you know, you can be a part of this group, um, which is now coached by Dathan Rissenheim, um, who's a three-time Olympian for the United States and the former 5K um, American record holder who trained with NOP and also Brooks Hansen's um, throughout his career and became a marathon runner later on. So he's coaching us. We have eight people, four guys and four girls, and the plan was to build a group um, to kind of gain that prevalence um, in the United States and around the world to have these great athletes come through and to be a similar version of all the other big uh, professional groups in America. Um, and that at this point, you know, it's been fantastic. Everyone's been very well looked after and we're very lucky for on to be able to do what they're doing and to kind of push the sport forward um, with their vision of having a diverse team. Cool. You, the squad's based in Boulder, Colorado, as you mentioned before. Uh, how beneficial is, do you think, is it just that permanent state of living at altitude? You know, you're not, it's not like you're going to Falls Creek for two or three weeks once a year or twice a year. You're, you're pretty much living there permanently. How, how, how vital is that? Um, it is pretty vital with a lot of the distance runners and middle distance runners, I think, on the team um, to have – I mean, we're at – we're pretty, pretty – like, we're decently high. I think we're the highest um, comparatively to anywhere in Australia. So, you know, it's a good community, great setup. Boulder is notoriously known for a lot of athletes coming here, not just cyclists and triathletes, but great runners like Craig Mottram, uh, Monaghetti, Lee Troop, um, who's a marathon runner from Australia, has the group in Boulder. So – um, the history is there that it's been a great place for training, not just because of altitude, but because of the environment, the trails and the place that it is and the people that live here. Um, and I think for on, they wanted to create a group at altitude to get the benefits of it and to be able to have those athletes um, get that edge from, from the altitude, but also live in a community that is very, very um, historic with, with endurance distance running um track running and also cycling triathlon so so it, it was for them it was um definitely something they wanted to be a part of that community they wanted to build a build a group here that would uh kind of take the benefits of it cool man getting back to the australian scene for, for a minute you know I, I assume you watched the national 1500 final with stewie versus die um yeah. you know, that race just looked like it would be just perfect for you to just you know jump on that that pace set by Stewie. Were you itching, you know, to go when you watched that? Uh, was it was it painful not to be there? Yeah, I mean, it was it was difficult. Um, I made the decision to not go back. Um, and obviously, when you make a decision like that, you sometimes question it. But I was very, very certified in the goals that I've had, and and the re- the rewards from the races have proved that. But it's obviously something that you want to be a part of, um, especially with. Just the depth and the and the caliber of athletes in the fifteen hundred this year has been phenomenal. Everyone's running amazing and uh, doing such a great job. Um, I'm very very happy for Jai. I think that was an incredible run, and I think um, earning your place on that team like that is a is a pretty uh, pretty ballsy move. And I think it's pretty awesome to see him do so well after coming back from such a hard time with injury. Um, and Stewie obviously going out going out that hard. It just shows how um, fierce he is as a competitor and as a runner. 
And uh, I mean, obviously, you, when you look at a race like that, you want to put yourself in it, see where you would be. But it's hard because you don't know what would it be like on the day and, and where would you be in that position. Um, so it's hard, be hard to kind of put yourself there. But I definitely think about it and put it through my head. And I love watching that race. It was probably one of the best um, trials races I've seen um, in a very long time. So it was pretty awesome. Uh, it was disappointing to not be a part of, but hopefully, you know, when Paris comes around, I'll be able to come back and not have any restrictions in that part. Have you heard much from the Australian selectors? Has there been much communication? Um, mostly just they've been in touch with me, um, you know, encouraging and just just telling me what's going on back home and what's what's happening here with vaccinations, with uh, situations with moving around. Um, you know the the possibility of of Tokyo and the situation with travel um, to there and from there, but nothing other than that. Nothing that um, a lot of athletes are probably who are in that kind of bubble of selection are, are getting from them. They've been obviously they're very good with getting that information out and helping every athlete um, kind of understand where they're going to be. Um, but other than that, yeah, they've just they've just been a good guide of of what's been going on back home and what the situation is for them moving forward to Tokyo. Have you been vaccinated? Yes, I have been. I got vaccinated, I think, uh, about a month ago. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very different situation here. I think everyone, pretty much every adult, can get vaccinated here very easily now. So hopefully that comes by you guys um, in Australia soon because I know, um, you know, when things start to do that, hopefully we'll start to see things more opening up and people can start um, progressing forward with it. So there's no more mask wearing, I presume, going on? Uh, there is still mask wearing just because of the safety of others with yeah. people that have been vaccinated or there's still, you know, obviously there's that percentage risk that um, you could have COVID or you could carry it even with vaccination because of such a short um, time. But at this yeah. point right now, it's it's been dropping dramatically and outdoors you cannot, you don't have to wear a mask. Um, it's only indoors in small environments or if you're up walking around and not sitting down in a um, kind of designated seating area, then you then you have to wear a mask, yes. Ollie, I was chatting to, to someone who was telling me that you do a lot of swimming as a, as a kid, as a teenager. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How, how, you know, was that a really good kind of building block for you to build a big base? There's been a lot of famous athletes over the years that have swum a lot as kids. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was I was predominantly a swimmer. I grew up a swimmer um, in my family. My brother was a fantastic swimmer, and we went to Trinity Grammar School to swim, really. Um, and then I fell. I had cross training in cross country. It was kind of my, you know, summer was swimming, winter was cross country, and didn't really fall into track until I was sixteen. And then, then from there, it kind of blossomed into something greater for me. But my swimming was a big part of who I was in Australia and what I did moving forward. And and. Uh, I do miss it quite a bit. I try and get a swim in when I can. This is great for the body to kind of loosen up, um, not being a weight-bearing exercise. Um, but, yeah, I swam a lot and I was a competitive swimmer for quite some time, but the running was just obviously a better fit for me and I was much more successful in it and it got me to where I am today. So, um, But it was fantastic. I mean, I do miss that and it would be awesome to keep that going for my training just with my running too. Do you feel like the swimming just, you know, kind of helped build a massive aerobic capacity for you? Yeah, I think my VO2 max definitely uh, got the benefit of that and just being able to train. The durability-wise, like I think all the sessions were, you know, double sessions, two and a half hours, getting like, you know, six to seven K in 
a session. Um, it was, it was really, you know, it was tough stuff and that mentally as well as physically it helped me moving forward with my running, um, just getting through the training in that aspect in a different sport. So I think all that benefit definitely came through and I think it just helped me kind of realize what it takes to feel that pain, feel that struggle with one sport and then translate it to another um, later on. Right, because I mean, some of those swimmers, the pro swimmers, just do ridiculous sessions, don't they? Yeah. You know, they kind of, they kind of make the you know the runners' sessions seem pretty short and, and sharp in comparison. Hey, yeah, they do. I mean, the, the, that's one thing with the weight bearing sport is you can only do so much. Whereas with a uh, sport like swimming, where you're not hitting the ground all the time, you're not hitting hard. It's just you, you know, being uh, floating in the water. You can get in a lot more volume and uh, push your body a lot harder. So. Um, they definitely, you know, they prove to a lot of people sometimes what it takes to be the best is you got to work your ass off and uh, work so hard to get those hours in. And, yeah, it's it's incredible what they do and it's pretty cool to see the transition for me from both sports and what it takes in either of them to be at that kind of level. Mate, a lot of people want to know about your training, so let's just jump into it. First of all, you're obviously a coach by um, Ritz, who's, who's obviously a famous runner in his, in his own right. And you guys do a lot of running kind of around the opposite, you know, way of the track. Um, you know, tell me a bit about that. How much do you do it? Why do you do it? Yeah, so I think for me, like, we do a lot of uh, uh, we do a lot of strength work, but then it incorporates a lot of speed. So um, a lot of the sessions we'll do, we'll do chunks of, of work at kind of that threshold pace at the start. And you would like this to go backwards um, just because you're so used to going in one direction on the track that your hips and your hip flexors can kind of get worn down from that to go the opposite way. It helps just not just your left side and your right side, but it kind of evens out both sides of getting used to running um, under that kind of pressure. Um, Especially when you're doing longer track workouts, that's what we do a lot of the time. Um, When it gets the faster speed stuff, we can do it on the opposite side as well, but uh, usually it's on the right side of the track and we usually go on the, the traditional way um rich does that because he wants us to be able to kind of not overdo certain sides of our body um he doesn't want us to kind of feel like we're working too hard on one side and they're not getting enough work on the other or vice versa and also like it's just a mental difference too you know like when you're going around a track maybe doing mile repeats or anything like that earlier on you want to be able to kind of mentally stay focused but stay relaxed and i think switching um, directions really helps us kind of not just fall asleep but also kind of keep in the groove keep in that rhythm but be able to kind of understand um, that mental break between reps I think he, he definitely helps us with that you stated a bit ago that um, workouts kind of under Ritz are a bit more bigger like a bigger and a bit more intense than say they were in your Wisconsin days uh, at college so can you expand on that a bit like an example of, of how they're you know how it's gone kind of stepped up to the next level yeah i mean overall it's just we're running faster we're running a lot more volume and we're doing it more often and i mean some of the workouts we've been doing like seven by mile at altitude is not easy um particularly if you're running them at 430 down to four you know 14s um with one you know with 60 seconds rest um that's tough um you know in college i never did anything like that um, any kind of hills workout or um, track workout, mile repeat breakdowns that, uh, you know, maybe six, seven miles of, of a work, of workout in college is probably doing about four or five 
when I was in season. And right now we're still doing that. So, I mean, after my Mount Sack run where I ran 333, um, I got taken from the track. I put shoes on and I did a five-mile tempo at five teens pace around hilly um, places in Mount Sack. So really it's just about kind of getting in that volume but staying in that kind of situation of being able to train hard and train smart. Um, we get in a lot of, we're getting a lot more hard intense work in the workouts, but we also take that time to recover um, through the week and be able to kind of run in the best possible way. And I think for me, the training's just been going really well because I feel like I've been able to kind of be very durable um, with no injuries and getting through that training has been just week by week. You feel slightly better, slightly better with the altitude and then, you start to feel really good and um, when you get get on that roll, it's just kind of an exciting thing to be able to do those workouts because you look back at your logs and you see what you've been doing and it's cool to see those workouts improve over time, not just for you physically but also mentally too going through them. So, um, yeah, in college it was just much more of a different situation yeah. with the time that we had and what we were doing moving forward um, with with the racing system. Cool, man. And coming from a um, someone who's incredibly injury prone, I find it amazing that like you know your body obviously can handle all this. So, what are you doing to to strengthen your body? Is there a lot of time spent in the gym working on biomechanics and core strength and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so Bruce um, is a big believer in working a lot of strength training. We have Jason Ross, who's uh, he was a uh, bobsledder, American bobsledder, um, that kind of helps us do a lot of that kind of power and strength and injury prevention. Um, work that we do maybe two two times a week, three times a week maybe. Um, Play on session days. Yeah, so that they're actually done. One's done on a recovery day. Um, I think another done another one's done on a long run day, and then there's a, if there's a third one, it'll be doing after a workout and uh, or before a race. Sometimes we do a small lift just to activate. Um, but yeah, that's kind of just an injury prevention, just to keep strength um, to prevent that. We also we also very much get a lot of treatment, massages, chiros. Um, needling, um, joint needling, anything that people feel like they need, um, risk gets it sorted and um, on helps us, um, you know, put that on the budget and they look after us in that way. And um, when people need treatment for two hours or an hour and a half after a big week, they get it and they're able to kind of go through that process. So we're very fortunate for that. Um, we partnered with Roll Recovery who has a gym for us that we use that's exclusively ours. So, we have a great system and set up for the OAC where we can kind of go into our gym, do our thing and, and not have kind of any issues with access or um, needing to get any kind of treatment because we can just go straight there and, and get that done. So we're very privileged, privileged with that and it definitely helps with being able to run those ridiculous workouts and getting those miles. It um, helps you keep healthy and keep you going. A typical week, like let's just look at your base training at the moment just um, just quickly. What – what would a typical week look like? Uh, so at this point, our week is kind of uh, – it, it looks a bit different to a lot of others. I mean, Monday for me, if we start on Monday, we usually have about a 10-mile easy run. Tuesday would be a long run, um, 18 to 20 miles. Um, Wednesday, I'd do a double, so maybe about 14 to 15-mile double. So I'm going to do 10 and 5 or 9 and 6. I do drills and strides after that day. And then um, uh, Thursday would be a workout. Now, Thursday is usually a um, – not not a ball buster workout, not a, not a really crazy workout, but it's definitely a workout that like we do a lot of strength, a lot of speed um, work. And then we'd move forward on Friday. We would have um, another easy probably 
easy five miles um, on Friday. It's kind of a recovery day for me. Um, a lot of athletes run more if they need to. And then Saturday, I do another double of like 10 and 5 with drills and strides. Sunday is a big workout, usually uh, something that's six to seven miles, um, pretty intense, pretty hard stuff, like a seven by mile with some hill work or anything like that on the track. Um, and then that kind of just resets for the next week. So we don't usually do the long runs on Sunday. I think that's because um, this is the way our system's set up and the way our progress goes through with treatment and with with lifting, we kind of do it like that at this point in time. Right. So, I mean, it's the fair to say you're not really doing too much specific um, speed work during your base base period, or you're doing a lot um, of run throughs and stuff. Is that yeah, yeah. mostly strength. Um, like if I, I do a lot of strength work with a ten k ten k guy on my team, Joe Klecker, um, who's run thirty six and a five two. Like I, I train a lot with him, and then after a session with him, I'll get onto a track. Maybe put some spikes on, do a couple of fours at 52, 53 just to get that speed going after feeling, you know, that lactic in the legs, feeling crappy in the legs. And I mean, speed for me has never been an issue of getting it there. Maybe take me a week or two and I've already got that kind of edge of speed. It's just about that strength of being able to keep that speed going um, for a longer duration that um, has been the main focus to build that foundation there. And are you hitting these, like, say, say on Tuesday when you go out for your long run, like, are you hitting that? Are you just cruising, chatting the whole way, or is it turning into a kind of threshold-type long run? Um, yeah. Well, obviously, if, if a race is coming up that week, it's it's much more chill, but it's usually quite quite quick. Um, we usually run very hilly, um, sometimes higher up, and we run around the five um, 540s, um, maybe sometimes quicker, averaging for 18 to 20 miles. So um, it's just that's it's, it's seen as another session in some ways. Um but, you know, we, we kind of have that belief of if you're feeling good, go for it. If you're not, just take a step back and get through the run and, and, and run how you feel. But um, most of the time, we're all feeling pretty good. So we go, we have a chat, but we certainly get after it in the middle and near the end just to kind of get, get it rolling. Right. And so, all right, so let's move on to a typical week kind of pre-comp, you know, let's say leading up to a race just right before, you know, racing season starts. How does that week change? Um, it does change, you know, the lowers in mileage just kind of tape a little bit, but not too much for us. I mean, we just, I think two to, two to three or four days out is usually enough time to kind of settle in. So if you, uh, you know, if you're racing on Saturday, then maybe Tuesday is your last decent session. And then you kind of go down from there and, you know, your doubles get smaller and you just, you just want to start feeling fresh and get your runs in nice and relaxed. Um, you'll do like a pre-workout probably on Thursday. Um, that'd be the last kind of thing that you would, you get your legs going for. And then Friday, you know, you probably travel. Saturday, you race. So um, for us, you know, it, I think the one thing about it is not taper too early because you can kind of feel flat at that point, but obviously not taper too late. Um, I think the three to four day is perfect for us. We get a good workout in. Our body's able to kind of recover, get the treatment it needs, uh, run those easy runs and start feeling fresh for the race leading up. Um, near the end of the week right let's say like four weeks out before, before a race is kind of what i mean in terms of what how does it how does it change from your base training say four weeks out from major race is it just okay. much more uh, the same or you're doing specific um yeah you know, it's, it's much training. more the same we don't really change much um i mean for us a lot of base and strength work goes in throughout that training block and then probably four weeks out we start doing crazy workouts maybe two weeks out um you know, and, and maybe a weekend 
of the competition, um, I would say that's when you start to have that kind of week of, of what I just described. So I'd say for the four-week block, your two weeks is usually just regular training, just regular strength training that you usually do, um, working hard and kind of getting your legs going. And then the third week um, out of the four would be that week where you do some crazy workouts. You know, you, you present your fitness and you show where you're at. Um, with the training that you've just done and then the fourth week is just kind of building into um, that race um, get a good workout in earlier in the week and then just kind of rest get the treatment and just enjoy your runs and go through that process up to the race at the end of the week so that would be kind of what we would what we would put in place um, moving forward uh, in race cool we talked about one of your bread and butter sessions before this you know seven by one mile of 60 seconds what in terms of track sessions what's some of your bread and butter track sessions yeah, so um, I've done. I think one great one that I like doing is um, there's a uh, twelve by I think it was sixteen. Oh no, it's twelve by two hundred, um, and it would go. We do four sets of um, three, and it would be like twenty. I think twenty six, twenty five, twenty four, um, with a hundred jog. So about thirty, thirty about forty five seconds, I think, recovery. And then from there, we do a three-by-mile at about 4.40 down to probably about four, 4.30s. And then we hit the hills and do about eight hills, 200-meter hills, hitting about 33, 34. So um, that's a workout where you definitely earn a beer afterwards. Um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like that's that, that type of workout is a workout that maybe we'd only do um, a few times just to, you know, you can show your fitness and show where you are and that's, one of those workouts for sure for us is, um, you know, pretty pretty long, pretty intense. But to be able to kind of run that speed, go back to kind of that tempo, strength kind of based uh, mile repeats, and then go back to kind of that strength speed of going up the hills is kind of what Ritz, is, Ritz loves doing. He loves that kind of stuff because it just – it gives you the switch from both elements and it's both elements that you kind of desperately need moving forward um, when you're training okay. at that, that level. Ollie, listening to all this, it's pretty obvious that, you know, you were pretty much, you train really like a 5K runner, I guess, with 1,500 race pace work sprinkled in there. And is that is that an accurate statement? You know, there's not really much specific, say, 800-meter kind of race pace work done? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely definitely right. I think I, at this point in time, I've responded very well to that type of training. Uh, I think for me, it's just about... Um, I'm a 1500 meter runner now, but in a three to four years time, um, I could be a 5k runner, I could be a 10k runner, and then moving up to to longer distances or staying at the shorter distance. I think for me, I've I've got that range, um, which has helped, which has shown with my training. But it doesn't take me long to get that speed back um, after a while off. So for me, for Ritz, it's just about keeping that strength foundation there. Um, and then just being able to kind of com- combine it with that speed has, has been something that I know for me is a big advantage um, when it comes to racing, just being able to hang on and be able to kind of change the gears when I need to. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that I train more like a 5-10K guy, but I race like a 15 guy. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. yeah, gotcha. Ollie, you love taking races on and, you know, you build a reputation for having to crack have you thought much about, say, the Olympic heats, uh, round one, round two of the Olympic Games, 1,500 metres, you know, um, we've seen a lot of strong front runners and aggressive runners get run out in their heats when, you know, the first two laps are super slow and they close in, you know, 148, 800. So 
have you have you given that sort of stuff much thought? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that I learned in college. I mean, a lot of the college transitioning through NCAA's or qualifying for NCAA's or Big Tens or anything like that, any conference meet, you got to go through heats, you got to go through rounds. So, um, I, you know, I was able to learn that the the hard way, kind of, you know, missing out on certain things or moving through and and winning certain things, and I was able to kind of get good at understanding where to be in a race tactically. Um, I think it's it's uh, crazy to um, for, for Olympic heats in particular, when I think about that, it's just about knowing where you are in the race and where you need to be and to stay relaxed and don't panic with that situation. Um, but it's definitely a skill. I mean, a lot of people might say um, there's not much to distance, you know, distance running, but there is a skill of being race ready, having a race instinct and being able to kind of have that race fitness of dealing with a race that goes out slow and then rips in the middle and then goes out slow again, then rips at the end. Like it's, it's definitely something you have to kind of learn and, and be be able to kind of be seasoned with. So it's definitely um, something that I haven't obviously been, been showing much of because I've been going out and leading these races and going after it. Um, but that's only due to I think I'm in a different place right now to a lot of people over here and I need to make sure that I can show um, Athletics Australia that I am, you know, in this position. I'm doing well. I'm winning races and I'm running fast times. That was important to me. Um you know, moving forward for selection. So it, I don't have time to muck around in those races, you know, it's just to, to put it on the board and to, to move forward. And I think those races leading up, obviously, um, hopefully, you know, Gatec could be an example of a much more tactical race, um, depending on the weather and, and where it is in the UK. So I think, yeah, it, it's a great thing to learn. And I have been thinking about it. And my coach and I are definitely going to be working on that too and trying to take a take a good perspective of both sides of the, the coin the, the coin that goes out really really hard from the gun and the coin that kind of sits back and has to deal with much more of a tactical um technical race mate is on flying you business class to 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 europe or what yeah well i, I hope so in a swiss engineer plane um no i mean yeah well i'm flying out from um i think i'm flying out from denver um to the uk um, I don't know if it's first class, but uh, Diamond League are the ones that look after that ticket. So um, if I if I need the upgrade, I, I'm sure I can uh, pester on for it. But uh, <laughs> they've organized all those flights and that accommodation. Diamond League do all of that, which is awesome. So, nice. um, yeah, so it's just, I mean, for me, I'm just excited to be able to have the opportunity to compete in such a, um, you know, great system and cool race. And, yeah, I'm just- excited for it. Just quickly, um, just one more question, or two more questions. Does Ritz manage you as well? Does he manage any kind of your contracts and affairs and business stuff, or is that a, do you have an agent for that? Yeah, I have an agent for that, Ray Flynn. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's my agent that manages that sort of stuff. But him and Ray, Ritz and Ray have a great relationship and they work together on that because Ritz is in charge of the team. So, for example, um, with Ray, like he'll say, okay, these are the meets that Ollie can get into. I recommend these ones and then Ritz will go, yeah, yeah, I recommend these ones too or I'm looking at this race, can you get him into this race? So, um, you know, Ritz talks to the agents of the athletes on the team um, who's not just Ray. We have multiple uh, agents represented by the athletes on the team and they kind of had that conversation of we'll get, you know, so-and-so into one race and -and so-and-so into another one. So it's kind of a communication dialogue. Um, Ritz kind of has the mantle of what he wants you to race you in and then it's up to your agent to kind of book it, um, get the flights, the accommodation, and then forward it to um, to Ritz to kind of confirm and, and get it through. Ollie, to finish up, mate, we have 
in Australian 1500 running at the moment, we have Jai Edwards, who is kind of like a bit like you, untucked, untucked talent, and everyone's kind of wondering how quick this guy can go. Then we have Stewie, who is obviously a machine, you know, sub 730, 3000 guy, 330, 1500 man. If you had to line up against one of them, you can only choose one for half a million bucks head to head. Who would you choose if the race was tomorrow? That's a good question. Well, I've never raced you in a 1500. I've raced Giant Mile when I was back home um, and he kicked my ass. So I'd have to pick Stewie, I think. Um, I think both 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 guys would be interesting to see how it would go because I think it'd be a much different race. I think Jai and I would be much more tactical um, because we don't know where we would be. Whereas with, I think Stewie and I might be more aggressive. We might go out a bit harder. So, um, but I would definitely pick Stewie, I think, in that, in that, um, in that uh, situation, yeah. Happy days. Happy days, well, yeah. Good chat. Good luck with um, the European campaign that's about to start and, and hopefully uh, the Tokyo Games. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time.